Hello and welcome to this episode of Esquire University. Today we'll be talking with attorney Marcus Susson. He is on the plaintiff steering committee for Paragard. If his name sounds familiar, it's because he was also on the executive committee for Eshore. That is the case against Bayer in which the plaintiffs received a $1.6 billion settlement. And without further ado, here is the interview with Marcus. Hello, I'd like to welcome Marcus Susson to the podcast today. Welcome. Hey, Eric, how you doing? I'm doing good. So today's subject, we're going to be talking about uh, new litigation Paragard uh, that has a lot of similarities to two other mass torts that were uh, against IUDs for women, one uh, being Morena and the other being Eshore. And Eshore, you were heavily involved in, correct? Yeah, Eshore, um, I guess, uh, specifically wasn't an IUD. It was a permanent sterilization device, uh, coils that went into the fallopian tubes, not necessarily the, the uterus. Um, but it's a birth control method and it was, you know, currently off the market. Um, just like the Dalkin Shield, we can go back even further before Morena, um, another birth control uh, device that is taken off the market. Yeah, and with, with a lot of these devices we were talking before, uh, all targeted at women, uh, all birth control, uh, doesn't seem to have a great track record, no matter who the manufacturer is, as far as protecting women. Uh, can you go a little bit further into that and, and what you're seeing from a, from a lawyer's uh, perspective? Yeah, well, one thing since I've been working in women's health advocacy for about over a decade, um, focusing on that, specifically in dealing with Esher, Morena, um, and now Paragard, the question just pops into my head, uh, me being a male, um, is why women have to bear the burden of birth control. Because we all know and we all recognize that medical devices or drugs, they all carry some level of risk, right? Um, and the majority of that risk is, is on women for birth control. And, you know, the question that I kind of want to get out there is why is that? Um, is the pharmaceutical companies think that women are, are easier targets for them? Do they think that males um, won't participate? But the majority of these products, even the ones that have been recalled, are all aimed at women. Yeah, and Eshore, because that was the most recent and, and you were heavily involved in that, can you kind of give just a, a quick explanation of that? And then we can draw some parallels to Paragard because you said they're not, they don't do exactly the same thing, but... It's a product for for women uh, as far as you know a a, a pregnancy uh, something to stop a, an unwanted pregnancy. Right. So there there really two. The, the main difference is Esher is a medical device um, for permanent sterilization, uh, a medical device. Paragard, on the other hand, even though it's an IUD, um, it's regulated as a drug which kind of, you know, makes me wonder, you know, why it is because Paragard is marketed as hormone free um, and they market it as an IUD, D being device, <laughs> not, not drug. So that kind of raises the first question. That's the biggest difference between Esher and Paragard. Esher was a device. Paragard is being regulated um, as a drug. Um, Esher. Is there a reason behind that? Was that, it easier that, to get through the FDA that way, or what, what was the, the purpose? 
Yeah, that's the question that I have um, right now, and we'll and we'll find that out. But um, it's it's regulated as a drug now, even though it's a device. But the problems that we're seeing with the quote unquote drug are actually device problems, right? The the MDL is centralized uh, in Georgia, and it's centered around the device breaking. So not necessarily a, a drug problem, but it's more of a, a device problem, right? And these, from what I've read, these are breaking upon removal. So someone has it put in uh, and then they want to get it removed because they're, they no longer need the device. And then they're breaking off. And it sounds like everything from perforation of the uterus to migrating into other organs and, and causing in some cases, some significant damage. Yeah. So that's another uh, distinction to Esher. Esher, when these women had it implanted, um, it was a form of permanent birth control. They didn't want to have um, any more children. Um, they were all done. With Paragard, Paragard has a lifespan of 10 years, and it's meant to be temporary. So the damages that, that I'm seeing um, in the Paragard litigation, when a woman has to get a hysterectomy because the device is broken on removal, um, that woman can't have any children anymore. Now, for Esher, one could argue um, that they didn't want to have any kids to begin with, right? Um, but for Paragard, that person, that woman, you know, specifically got Paragard so she could take it out and have a family. Um, and now we're seeing if they get a hysterectomy because of some issue, um, they're not allowed to. So I think the damages um, in the Paragard litigation are, are, are going to be more significant um, not to downplay the, the damages in the Esher litigation by any means, but um, that certainly that factor is there that these women signed up for a temporary device and really got a permanent injury here. Yeah, not only that, and I don't know when Esher came out, but Paragard has been around since the 80s, right? Yeah, so it was approved by the FDA in 82 or 84, I believe. Um, so it's been around a while. Um, just check the FDA's website. It'll show that there's about 40,000 um, claims made or complaints lodged there. Um, I believe about 15 or 16,000 of them were uh, labeled as serious. Um, and you might ask yourself, oh, well, that's not too many considering, you know, how long it's been on the market. But um, a lot of drug experts and medical device regulation experts and, and studies have published that a minority, only about 10% of these adverse events or, or claims or issues are actually reported. The majority of them go unreported. Yeah, I would, I would feel that if someone goes in for this procedure they, and that something breaks off, they have a conversation with their doctor and they might feel like, oh, you know, woe is me. I'm one of the unlucky ones without understanding that it, it's not just you. There's, there's at least 40,000 of these adverse events that have already been reported, which is showing really some negligence on the, on the manufacturer's side. Yeah, and that, that, the ultimate issue which you just raised um, is what will, what will ultimately come about in court, whether they were negligent. Um, one thing that we do know is that they had a label change and they changed their label in 2019, um, essentially beefing up, if you will, uh, the breakage uh, warning. Um, obviously, in my opinion, that warning is still inadequate. Um, however, it just goes to show that 
you know, if they're making changes, you know, why, why did they make the change? Was something yeah, they, inadequate? Yeah, they, they obviously know there's litigation against them now that the MDL has been formed. Is there, is there something that you've discovered so far in looking into this that the manufacturer really did understand the risk of this breakage uh, and the damage it could do? Or is it, are we still in that investigative process? So the answer to your question is, is kind of twofold. Number one, the litigation is, is early. Um, and number two, when we enter into litigations of this size, um, we sign and we're, we're bound to protective borders um, most of the times, which allow us not to talk about certain documents. Um, so one, it's a little early, but two, when those documents, if they exist, when they come out, um, will most likely be uh, bound. We will be bound by a protective order not to discuss those. But I, but I can tell you that that happens in a lot of litigations, and I've reviewed a lot of internal documents from big farm companies uh, that I can't talk about, but would uh, shock shock anyone's conscience when if they saw these documents. Now, you know, this podcast is typically for, for lawyers, but there might be some people listening to this that have been affected by it. What type of injuries are you seeing and what type of injury should a person contact you about if they've had this device and had some, have some, some negative health effects from it? Yeah, so the, the, mo the majority of injuries that we're seeing is that these women, when they get the device removed and it breaks, is that they're requiring uh, a subsequent surgery to get, get it removed. Maybe a piece gets lodged in an internal organ or in their body somewhere, and they have to go in and have a surgery to take it out. That's probably the most common injury that I've been seeing, um, and it kind of contradicts the whole purpose and underlying uh, the underlying purpose of a paraguard is that it's, you know, easy, non-surgical, put it in, you can take it out. Um, it kind of takes away from, from their whole marketing point on that. Besides that, we see a lot of infections, um, even up to hysterectomies where women have to just get everything taken out to make sure that the device is completely out. And you're, you're currently signing these cases, correct? Yep, absolutely. We're, uh, we're taking them and I don't think, um, there's probably uh, a couple hundred, two to three hundred filed in the uh, the MDL currently. Now, what could you give a little bit of color to what you're hearing from the injured parties? So these women, uh, do they all have a consistent story? Like, oh, God, I just thought this was going to be some just real simple procedure. Uh, what do you have out there? And I think this can help educate lawyers who are looking for these cases and the general public who may have been affected by it. Because as you know, working in this industry, a lot of the, the problem with trying to get retribution for these injuries is people just don't know that there is an outlet. They don't realize that, you know, you, like you said, 10% of the people may have, have been part of that 40,000 of adverse events, which leaves a lot of people who haven't had the ability to get help. Right. And without going into any specific conversations, I think the most I think important underlining theme that comes across in, in, these, in these types of litigations is that these women and, and men in other, in other litigations, they are not aware of the FDA approval process. They are not aware that if they get injured, they should be reporting these claims to the FDA. Um, they're not aware 
that they can go online and simply check to see how many adverse events or complaints have been filed against a particular device. Um, and I think if there's one message out there, which I hope, um, I guess, to get across is that the FDA is only good as the information that it has. So if people aren't reporting these problems and don't know that they should be reporting these problems, um, you know, the FDA is left with, with little data to, to move off of. So I'm hoping that, you know, maybe this conversation and other litigations, um, we can get the message out there that, you know, look, if something happens, make sure you report it to the FDA. Right. Now, as you mentioned, this is very early on. So there has been an MDL established. What, do you have kind of just an estimated timeline for some of the next steps, you know, like, like bellwethers and things like that? Sure. So there is a, an MDL that's formed in, in the Northern District of Georgia right now. Um, there's some one-off cases that have been filed out in California in, in Pennsylvania as well. So we'll probably in the future end up seeing some uh, state MDLs, if you will, um, in California, in Pennsylvania. But it, it's on the early stages of litigation, the complaint's been filed, the defendants filed a motion to dismiss, seeking, excuse me, to dismiss several counts. Um, and those arguments will be heard uh, relatively, relatively shortly. But I mean, look, these types of litigations take, take years to, uh, to see play out. Right. Now, you're on the steering committee for this, and as I've mentioned before, you are heavily involved in eSure. Uh, is there something that you would tell to an attorney that's out there that wants to market for these cases and then partner with a firm like yours? Uh, I, I talk to a lot of people who are PI attorneys. They hear about these cases, and they want to get involved, and I always suggest you know, you really should pass these on to somebody who's really involved in the case because they're gonna be able to guide you in changes in statute of limitations. You know, what, what cases now qualify and which ones don't qualify. Anything to, uh, to an attorney who's considering Paragard for uh, helping to, trying to help out some of the women who've been affected? Yeah, so I mean, one thing I, I tell a lot of people and often I tell myself this, is that the pharmaceutical companies in, in every case have several, several law firms fighting for them. And, you know, I've seen this play out. They have one law firm that will uh, argue a motion to dismiss. They'll have another law firm that just does electronic discovery. They'll have another law firm that'll come try the case. They'll have another law firm who'll sit there and pick the jury. They'll have another law firm do settlements. So, what I tell people is, you know, look, join, join the team. And when I say join the team, if you want to refer the case out and kind of be done with it, that's one thing. But I always encourage everyone to stay involved. Um, ultimately, they're, they're your clients. Ultimately, you're, you're, um, you're working for your client. And more importantly, you get to see how everything plays out. And the more attorneys that we have advocating on behalf of the plaintiffs, the more level we can uh, make the playing fields. Right. Now, because we're so early on, um, if, are, you, are you kind of opening up to anybody who, who has an adverse event, meaning whether they say, hey, this happened to me in the mid nineties, you know, or, you know, I have, you know, this injury, you know, obviously hysterectomy, you know, kind of at the top <clears throat> of those injuries, 
Is there any kind of guidelines you would give people who are who are looking at these cases? Yeah, I mean, I tell them certainly to, to discuss it with you know myself or a member of the, of the steering committee um, because look, the fact of the matter is it's so case specific um, on what happens. Um, it depends on a lot of different factors um, where that plaintiff lives. For instance, there could be a choice of law. Um, trying to figure out what state law applies. Maybe one state has a one-year statute of limitations. Maybe the other one has a five-year statute of limitations. Um, probably more importantly than that, each state has, um, or I should say most states, have a variant of what they call a discovery rule or a concealment rule, um, which can be used to toll the statute of limitations. So, you know, going back to my response on the last question, um, I think get other lawyers involved no matter um, what the case is to talk about the case to figure out um, if it's viable. Makes sense. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover on, on the Paragard that we haven't discussed? No, I think that's it. I would just, you know, my main message is if I can get one thing from people uh, today to hear and remember, um, and that's if you have, you know, something goes wrong with a medical device or drug, don't just sit there, report it to the FDA because again, with, without the information to the FDA, um, they're not going to do anything if the information's not there. Right. Well, thanks for your time today, Marcus. Uh, this is very early on and would love to have you back as, you know, this uh, litigation starts to unfold to, to give everybody an update. Absolutely, Eric. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Have a good one.